Welcome to Third Fridays, the monthly legal talk show from Lois LLC featuring attorney Christian Cisan. This is the original forum in which real attorneys discuss workers' compensation issues, share their opinions, and engage in colorful conversations. This show showcases diverse perspectives of attorneys handling workers' comp cases, including case law trend, practical litigation strategies, and hot topics. Here's your host, Christian Cisan. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the December 2020 edition of the Third Fridays podcast. It's the last episode of the year. What a 2020 we've been through. Uh, I would say that the uh, majority of our podcasts has been primarily focused on, uh, what do they call it? COVID, right? That thing and how it's impacted our industry, our practitioners, how we practice uh, and what we recommend to clients. Uh, And before you know, we get into today's show, you know, it's always a nice reminder to introduce the guest uh, I have based on what that guest has contributed uh, in prior iterations or episodes. So uh, this month, my guest is is Addison O'Donnell. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Now, do you remember what we talked about the last time you were on the show? It wasn't too long ago. No, but December, uh, it could feel like an eternity. But uh, if my memory serves me correctly, last time I was on the show, back in uh, September, we discussed about the erosion of the labor market attachment defense. Yeah, I, you know, it, it's funny because, you know, the board has kind of taken it upon itself to, you know, strip employers and carriers of this defense, this defense without any real reason Uh, you know state of emergency aside the idea of that podcast or the concept of that was most most uh, claimants were applying to jobs without having to leave the house right Uh, you know we, we, we like to joke around that oh 2020 has been such a disaster but 2020 is still 2020 in the sense that we have computers we have the internet we have monster.com, Google, Craigslist. Uh, we have friends. We can email people. Uh, it's 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 a, it's a shocking development for the board to have to strip the carrier and employer of it of one of its defenses, uh, which is a very good listen for all of our our readers. Uh, Why well, I say readers, um, as if anybody's reading this, it's really listeners and, and viewers of our beautiful faces. Um, but a, a good thank you to all of them um, because the podcast does have some good news. Um, Feedspot has released an article detailing the top 30 workers' compensation podcasts uh, that people must follow. And this third Friday's podcast came in at number four. Uh, so I want to thank all of our listeners and viewers. Uh, I'm hoping to take the top spot in 2021. So that's definitely a New Year's resolution. But, you know, number four out of 30 and possibly more uh, isn't bad. So thank you to everybody for, for listening in, for tuning in and uh, I guess accepting our uh, advice over the air. So, Addison, you know, we're here today not to rehash some of our, um, I guess, anger or frustration at, you know, labor market attachment and COVID, but 
labor labor market attachment itself, right? And uh, I thought that you know it, it would be a good kind of segue from your last appearance to talk about uh, what happened recently. So, um, can you give us some brief background as to what happened at the appellate division level uh, in the past week? Sure. So the labor market attachment defense is not dead. Uh, the third department, the appellate division, indeed on the 10th uh, of December released a decision, uh, Policarpeo versus Rally Restoration Corporation. Now, at the outset, I should say that it was a very contentious decision, uh, a very rare uh, decision. It was a three to two decision. Uh, now, typically at that appellate level, right, uh, five justices out of nine are assigned to address administrative law matters, and uh, these are selected at random, presumably from the Chief Justice. Uh, usually decisions are made by this body of five unanimously, uh, or maybe it might be a four to one with a concurrence or a small dissent on a legal point, but what occurred in the Policarpio uh, case is a stark difference between the members of the court. Uh, and of course, uh, the issue is the appellate standard of review for labor market attachment. Uh, as we discussed back in September, uh, labor market attachment is a great defense for carriers as to ensure that claimants are receiving benefits uh, in good faith, right? To ensure that the claimant is providing a timely, diligent, persistent uh, work search. Uh, of course, if the claimant is found to have demonstrated a sufficient attachment to the labor market from the claimant's evidence, then awards are warranted. Uh, but ultimately, it's the claimant's burden. Well, all of that came to a head on Wednesday or on Thursday, uh, December 10th, uh, with the Polycarpio case. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good summary, Addison. And I think, you know, we can take it level by level and, and, you know, some of it has some, some academic discussion. We're going to go into exactly, uh, why it's important for our clients, but honestly, some, some of the facts in this case are really just for humor between, uh, you know, legal enthusiasts such as, uh, you and me, um, because a, a, a lot I, I did have a, a slight chuckle, uh, you know, every now and then when going through uh, some of the procedural history. So let's start um, at the beginning uh, from, uh, you know, where we are in the attachment uh, issue here in Policarpio. 62 jobs uh, were applied to by the claimant, right? 62 different businesses. And surprisingly, you know, what we typically see from claimants in this arena is, you know, I guess even less of an effort in terms of the result of that job application. Typically, they, they apply to a job and they think that they're done. But there's enough info where the board actually calculates how much of the total jobs were I guess in good faith or not in good faith. So of those 62 jobs, 27 employers rejected the claimant because he didn't have a social security number. 23 employers said that they had no need uh, for any any new uh, employees 
four of those 62 jobs said that the claimant didn't have the physical capability to do it based on his disability. Six of those jobs said that the claimant had no experience in the particular job. One of the employers said they couldn't employ him because he didn't speak English. And only one of those jobs, he didn't provide the result, right? So just, just an interesting start to where we are uh, in determining, is this a good faith, bona fide work search? Now, we're not going to name names as to who the adversary or who the claimant's attorney is. I'm going to say adversary, meaning that we're on it. It's not really our adversary, the claimant's attorney or the carrier. But uh, had we attacked it, from our perspective here at Lois Law Firm, my initial indication is this is already per se not a not an attachment to the labor market because it's not a bona fide search. You mentioned the tenets of American Axle as timely, diligent, persistent. Let's just assume that it's timely. Well, in American Axle, cold call inquiries were determined not to have satisfied that standard. So if you apply to someone who says that you that they can't accept you because you don't have physical capabilities, if you apply to someone that says you don't have the requisite experience, and if you apply to a job and then not provide the results of that application, then you are not actually attaching to the labor market. And so from a math perspective, the calculations are actually off right? We should be only talking about the jobs in which the claimant timely, diligently, and persistently applied to. So uh, I guess I have to say that just to reinforce, you know, the law and our standard here saying that we don't even need a trial, right? This claimant did not attach to the labor market. Do you agree? No, I absolutely agree. And, you know, the, the quantitative analysis uh, is also part and parcel of uh, the qualitative analysis. The claimant uh, identified potential employers by walking around, literally, this was found as a fact, walking around two boroughs of the city of New York two or three days per week. I mean, that, that to me also shows that there was no plan involved. There was, you know, the beauty of labor market attachment, the beauty of the tenets of American Axle is that it requires an intention to forage for something with such a substantial certainty that employment is on the horizon. Knocking door to door saying, hey, are you hiring, uh, is not necessarily indicative of a plan, right? Uh, it doesn't show that there is a substantial certainty, and the you know the the quantitative analysis that's something we do at Lois for you know for trial courts, and this is one of a handful of cases that I've seen where the board panel enumerates you know the types of employers and the results of the 62 that were submitted, and the appellate division for that matter. This kind of quantitative, quasi-statistical analysis. So I agree. I absolutely agree. And and we put that aside and then we look at, you know, this idea that someone can rehabilitate themselves vocationally. And this is I think where 
most claimants actually don't take advantage of this opportunity because it's harder to attach with an independent job search legally. Maybe administratively before a judge, you can because a judge administratively might not apply legal uh, theory to a decision as we've seen. But if you actively participate in vocational rehabilitation or you enroll full-time in an accredited institution, then you can be seen as attached to the labor market without actually employing an independent job search, which actually, I believe, has higher standards. So this claimant tries to do that. He goes to Workforce One, and Workforce One says, we can't provide your application because you don't have a social security number, right? You know, you're, you're undocumented, you're an illegal alien. One, I'm not so sure that's true. <laughs> it just, it doesn't seem to me that that could be true. Uh, but even if it was, and this is something that, you know, I just thought of, couldn't someone attach to the labor market by, I don't know, the old American way of applying to be a citizen? Wouldn't that make someone more likely to be employed by applying to be a citizen? I would actually say that applying to be a citizen in this country would be more evidence of attachment than 90% of the claimants that we come across in this type of defense. I absolutely agree. Um, you know, the, the underpinnings of this, of this conclusion here is that the claimant's uh, undocumented alien status can't be used as a blanket excuse for not attaching to the labor market. I agree with you, Christian. I, I lived in New York for four and a half years, and it it is almost implausible to think that if someone came in uh, to Workforce One to a city-sponsored uh, job rehabilitation program and didn't have a social security number that they would turn this person away, it it doesn't plausibly make sense. But let's you know let's suspend our disbelief. Good good point. Let's suspend the disbelief, right? And get to the point where he says that he enrolled in English speaking classes but was but was waitlisted. Now, uh, sorry for being a little bit pro America here, but I can't imagine that there is a private institution out there that won't provide a seat in a classroom a space in a remote learning environment, or I don't know, maybe access to any kind of free language translation service on the web. I, it just begs the question, what, what, how, can, how is that even getting across a trial judge's desk to say that you are waitlisted for enrollment in an English speaking or an English language class. Not to say that that's not an accredited institution, right? Because that doesn't pass muster there either. But just the fact that someone is waitlisted for a class in which one learns to speak English is so preposterous that in and of itself, I feel like that's the level of credibility that the claimant doesn't have. And may maybe, you know, we don't have access to their briefs, right? But maybe. That is also the per se no attachment uh, argument that you can make. Right, and the I, I must say the majority of the uh, of the court specifically went out of its way to say that the question was not of the claimant's credibility, 
And the only reason why they would want to go out of its way to say that, right, is exactly to patch that hole that you've just identified, this logical leap between you're in New York and you're on a wait list for an English class. I mean, it's, it's just facially preposterous. Um, yeah, so what happens at the law judge level? What does the law judge find in this case? So, the, you know, the law judge it, it took the testimony of the claimant. The law judge indeed found that the claimant demonstrated a timely, diligent, persistent uh, effort to find a job and so directed awards. Uh, despite, you know, the claimant saying, I can't read or write or speak in English. And um, despite the, you know, this 62 job submission, which doesn't pass, it doesn't pass common sense muster. Right. So the carrier appeals and they say the claimant's not attached. And, you know, just for a brief moment, I want to take a little bit of a, um, you know, maybe a turn off the interstate here to address some of the statements made in uh, the claimant's attorney's legal brief. Um, because, uh, you know, the two of us know who this is. Uh, we're not going to say this, uh, but it, it's just interesting, right? So the first statement in, in the claimant's attorney's brief is that this would create an impossible situation for thousands of workers' compensation claimants. Impossible. Impossible. That's a very strong word. Saying that someone cannot apply for jobs in a case where the claimant got hurt on the job. <laughs> how, can, how can this be an impossible situation for thousands of workers' compensation claimants when the claimant himself in the job found a job to have resulted in a work accident in the first place? I, I, I have to perform so many mental gymnastics in order to get to that conclusion. You know, the claimant's counsel argued that it was an impossible catch-22, but it's only a catch-22 if, you know, you have your cake and eat it too. That's exactly Oh, it. very it's, nice. It's very circular. It's circular. I mean, you know, it's, you know, using the power dynamic, quote-unquote, of, you know, undocumented uh, employment and saying, you know, wow, look what's going on here. And then at the same time, you know, saying, oh, the, the claimant couldn't do this because, you know, uh, he's undocumented. It's circular. You know, you could, you could make you this a good point. all you want. Raise a good point. The second thing I was going to bring up was that he mentioned that the power dynamics of illegal employment already, already strongly favor the employer. <laughs> and I would actually disagree with that because an employer who illegally employs someone who is not on payroll, not off not on the books, doesn't report it to the carrier, that's a penalty. That's not and it could be administrative from the workers compensation board. There's also criminal penalties associated with the state of New York for illegal employment. Now, look, we're not going to be naive here and say that that some that that all employers legally employ all employees. We understand that that's a thing, but 
to, to kind of reinforce that the power dynamics of illegal employment already strongly favor the employer, it's, it's just wrong. It's wrong. It's a risk on both sides. The employee and the employer are taking calculated risks when they enter into this type of agreement. And the fact that this case exists, again, going back to the fact that this case exists, will show that the employee actually created a benefit from an American system in which they are not actually registered in that particular country or state. So I, I just don't agree with it. I think that you know it's it's you know sh surely some advocacy there that I can respect in some regard, but you know I'm wondering that the the use or the reference to that language in the brief by the board panel maybe started to shoot themselves in the foot because what they actually leaned on to come to their decision is what created this this opening for the appellate division to come on top and say no 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 so let's go there addison what did the board panel decide after the carrier appealed so the board panel modified the underlying decision and rescinded awards said look we looked at the record the law states that the claimant can't rely on his or her status of an undocumented alien to evade a labor market attachment direction so the awards were rescinded the claimant was found unattached uh, to the labor market and the attorney's fee was rescinded all three of uh, all three of these findings right uh sets the stage for the appellate division right the, the claimant wants to get the awards for six months plus the attorney wants to get that feedback so ultimately the board uh reversed in a in a somewhat rare finding and the board reversed the judge's uh, assessment of the case which you know i i'm astounded by I, i'm almost falling off my stool here yes yeah, um, i mean a good a good you know preliminary win for the carrier here where the board panel says that you know the lack of any actual job openings led to the conclusion that this search wasn't in good faith and and that's the first misstep i believe that you know unfortunately hurt the carrier here because it's attachment is not about securing a job right it's just about applying correctly applying with a, a solid basis we talk about timely diligent and persistent and the board is saying that the ends justify the means a little bit where they're saying that well how can the claimant's job search be in good faith if there were no openings and that's that's the statement that I think really hurts the carrier in the long run. Uh, you know, hint, hint, appellate division does not like that. Sorry, sorry, everybody, if, if you couldn't figure that out by now, right? And, you know, it, I think it would have been easier for the board panel to say, look at the, at the diligence and the persistence or lack thereof here. Is this something that we can expect a similarly situated undocumented illegal alien claimant to do and then attack it that way because 
I think that's I think that's something that they know or can do. It's just the way that they worded this decision presented an opening. And we go up to the appellate division. You make reference to the fact it's highly contested, three to two. So let's start with the majority opinion from the third department. What what did they, uh, you know, hound the board on? Sure. So at the outset, the majority of the court noted that the sole issue is whether substantial evidence supported the board's findings that the claimant failed to demonstrate attachment. Now, the court listed a litany of quote unquote support for its decision. Um, the way I read it is like the dissent, you know, there's no surprise there, but the court noted that the claimant, you know, listed these 62 businesses, identified employers by walking around, wandering around the city and sought work you know, that would not require a social security number. Now, immediately off the bat, when I hear these three things, I know, oh no, these are cherry picked facts. But what shocked me is that the court essentially skewered the board and noted that the board's, again, quote unquote, reliance on the fact that the claimant applied for jobs that had no publicized openings or didn't comport with his physical um, restrictions didn't support a finding that the job search lacked good faith, which is ludicrous. I mean, I, I cannot uh, wrap my head around this. Um, the claimant needs to have the specific intent of demonstrating a timely, diligent, and persistent labor market attachment. Uh, so when we go through this, I'm thinking, oh no, what, is, this, is this new law? This is definitely a fissure. But overall, the majority found that the decision was uh, without support, that the board's findings were without support of substantial evidence and reversing the decision. Uh, it, I mean, the fact that the claimant demonstrated attachment just by knocking on doors randomly and uh, you know submitting applications that no reasonable similarly situated claimant under that status would expect that employment would be on the horizon makes it ludicrous. Yeah, it's it's a tough outcome, you know, for uh, for sure. Uh, the idea that the claimant uh, is kind of being given the benefit of the doubt based on access, right? And a lot of the, the things that the the dissent of those two justices point out is that. You know, there's no evidence that the claimant could have actually rehabilitated vocationally through the use of a free computer at a public library, right? Through the use of a friend who can read an English-speaking newspaper, an English-written uh, English-language uh, newspaper, right? And I, I read that, and I'm I, I'm now <laughs> going back to our prior podcast and it's like wait so the court of appeals is assuming that the claimant can go outside to a free public library what a thought workers compensation board what a thought but i digress right that's that's an earlier episode right um but you know the dissent is certainly uh certainly a nice really it's actually a nice way to uh, immerse yourself in this issue where you know, we can expect a claimant to say, how can I be employed? Because if 
my undocumented status prevents me from being employed. Well, one, you got a job to get hurt. So, okay, like that's number one for me. But also, they, they cited United States Supreme Court cases, which, of course, anytime we're going to do that and talk about workers' compensation, you know, just, uh, just makes me giddy, right? Because now we're, we're actually bringing in, you know, uh, the supreme law of the land where we talk about the dichotomy between you know, asking an undocumented person to look for work. And they came up with this comparison by saying that if you fail to require an illegal undocumented alien claimant, if you fail to require that person to look for work, you are then making it easier for them to attach than an actual American citizen. You are putting them above an American citizen. And <laughs> it's, you know, again, I mean, may, I, I don't want to get into politics here. I don't, maybe, you know, but it's, it's a very, very difficult concept to imagine that, well, you didn't, you as a person did not uh, go through the process and you're not entitled to the same benefits that an American citizen is. But, we're going to allow you not to look for work the same way that a U.S. citizen would be. Because now, now we go back to the trial, right? If the claimant had a Social Security number, would that make his 62 jobs look better or worse? <laughs> I, you know, like, uh, it's, it's an honest question. I, I think it could be either, right. right? Let's say he does have a Social Security number. And that means the 27 of the 62 employers would either have to deny him on, a di on different grounds or accept him, right? And, you know, that, that kind of begs the question of, of, of really, you know, we like to say, what are we even doing here? How do we get to this point where we're going to compensate you despite the fact that you were legally employed? power dynamics are not always in the employer's favor. And then you don't have to look for work in the same way that an American citizen would have to look for work. That's a really, really tough decision. I agree. And it's, you know, the court uh, box at that, the court specifically says that the legislature is the proper entity to resolve this policy question. Um, this, this legal fiction that an undocumented alien must perform a diligent job search uh, when the success of such would require illegal conduct. I mean, that's if if one claimant is holding himself or herself out to obtain workers' compensation benefits, which is a theory of wage replacement, not substitution, right? Then what are we doing here? Um, and I I have to circle back to the dissent. The dissent understood that the spirit of the law was being broken here. Now, there are nine justices in the Appellate Division Third Department, and it's tight-knit, it's close, and we get the closest thing to a legal mic drop. <laughs> quote, quote, the majority does not hold claimant to his burden, end quote. I mean, these, these people are friends, they're close, they're colleagues. They want unanimous 
they uh, decisions. They want uh, per curium. They want things to be uh, one voice from the court. Uh, this is going beyond policy. I mean, this is this is fairly interesting, and you know, I'm eager to see if this goes beyond to the Court of Appeals, the highest court in the state of New York, because I feel like there will be, you know, uh, amicus briefs on this one from all kinds of people, you know, from various disciplines to give their opinions on it. Well, now that you mention it, it would it would make sense that uh, you know, on the air. Uh, I can formally pitch this carrier to say, hey, we'll go to the Court of Appeals for you. Oh, I would love We'll go that. to the Court of Appeals for you, and we will outline exactly what needs to be done and argued in a proper brief to the Court of Appeals. Uh, so if you're listening out there, carrier that won't be named, please consider us because this is very, very near and dear to our heart. For everyone else, you know, this is certainly something where we need to say, well, well, what do we do as a result of this? What, what, what does this mean for me? Because some of our carriers and employers, maybe correctly or maybe incorrectly, have a workers' compensation claim that's open with an undocumented illegal alien claimant, and my thought first off, is to use the theory of the case at trial over and over and over again, because we know what the claimant's attorney is going to go in there and say is that there's just no jobs available. And even if this case actually helps erode further labor market attachment, it doesn't erode the fact that vocational rehabilitation was not sought. Proofs need to be provided related to Workforce One, notwithstanding the fact that vocational rehabilitation is not required to go through Workforce One. It can be any job placement service. Enrollment in an English language class, but waitlisted. Okay, sir, please provide proof. Are you really waitlisted? And then what did you do after you were waitlisted? Did you want to go learn English elsewhere? Or did you feel like you just did enough? I mean, these are the types of things where we press forward on vocational rehabilitation and argue that the independent job search is per se not attachment. You may not even need to cross-examine the claimant as to the job search if the vocational rehabilitation is that bad. Because one of the things the third department focused on was the fact that vocational rehabilitation was not mentioned as much by the board panel. And that's the opening where we can kind of make headway. Use what's still out there to say that the claimant is not attached. Now, the claimant then goes back to independent job search and tries to say that Paula Carpio requires that a finding that this person be attached. Well, that's just an assessment of the actual jobs that are in place, right? What I can say is if, that, if the carrier played a role in figuring out this calculation of the 62 jobs, then that means we can do that every stop of the way. How many jobs are actually bona fide? Creating those mathematical quandaries actually enhances the argument. 
And, and that's my, my real takeaway uh, from this case, because as unfortunate as it may be for this particular carrier, sometimes it can actually help us strengthen our defenses in the future. So for Addison O'Donnell, and as another thank you uh, to all the Third Fridays podcast listeners and viewers for getting us to number four on the Feedspot rankings, uh, my name is Christian Cisan, and I'm going to thank you for making Third Fridays your first choice for a workers' compensation podcast. Please remember to defend from day one.